Welcome to Parallel, a tech podcast with Accessibility Sprinkles. I'm Shelley Brisbane, your host, and this is episode 67 for February 1st, 2022. This is going to be an unusual episode of Parallel, dare I say, a special episode of Parallel, because instead of interviewing great guests about tech topics with accessibility sprinkled on top, I'm the subject of today's interview. I write a book each year called iOS Access for All. Some of you probably know about it. And I cover in exhaustive detail the accessibility features for iOS, and I update it each year as Apple updates the operating system. And I've just published the iOS 15 edition last month. And a lot of people ask me, even after having done this for nine years, uh, how I do the book, why I do the book, what motivated me to do it. And even though people tend to like anniversaries in nice round years and there's the 10th one coming up, I guess I've been thinking about that a lot. I've been reflective about the journey that I've been on in terms of publishing this book myself. And I have also talked about the book a lot on other podcasts, but I wanted to do it in this forum because, well, some of you may not have heard these stories and those of you who have may not have heard some of the backstory, if you will. And uh, I noticed that a lot of my fellow Relay hosts talk fairly effectively about how the tech that they use and that they write about and talk about is impacted by the lives that they lead. And that's a fascinating thing you get to do when you have a co-host, right? Because you get to sit down with that other person and say, well, from my point of view, or this is what I was doing with my tech uh, today or last month or last week, or this is how my family and I interact with this technology. And uh, when you solo host a show, those opportunities don't really present themselves. So I, I guess I've decided I want to be a character in my own show, at least for today. And in order to do that, I brought in somebody who has been around the accessibility community and around the Apple part of that community for quite some time. And he's well known to a lot of people as Dr. Robert Carter. He co-hosts the Tech Doctor podcast, which you should check out and which you'll hear a little bit more about toward the end of our conversation. He's also a former Parallel guest, and now he is a recent addition to the Accessibility Roundtable. That's right. We have dubbed him Sir Robert, a Knight of the Roundtable. So without further ado, uh, let's get into it. Let the grilling begin. Robert Carter, welcome to Parallel. Well, thank you, Shelley. It's nice to be with you. It has been a while. In fact, back in the day when... Years ago, before pandemic, when we used to actually go to restaurants, we used to get, have the pleasure of going out to dinner occasionally and always en- it's true. enjoyed those things, but haven't done any of those for a while. So maybe one day we'll get back to some of that. But thank you for having me, and I'm excited to talk a bit about this book. But I'm not going to let you off quite that easily because... From long years of doing the Tech Doctor podcast, I'm in a habit of starting out getting to know the person a little bit. And I know the parallel audience knows you from listening to the podcast, but they may not know exactly how all this journalism came about for you. And so tell us a little bit about, I I know, I'm curious Did you major in journalism in college? And then just tell us a little bit about what you did in journalism after finishing college pre-iOS Access for All. I was a journalism major. I've always been a writer in one way or another, and I didn't necessarily want to be a journalist, but I knew I was interested in writing and in media. I started out as an RTF major and Ironically, given that I'm working in radio these days, I I quit that pretty quickly because I decided that I didn't have a career as a talking head on television, and that's kind of where that major was going. I was a business major for a while, and then I got back into journalism because it was really what what I loved and what I enjoyed and also just what I thought I was good at. So I did get a journalism degree, and... I um, like so many people, like so many people in general, but I want to be specific to say that like so many people who have a disability, uh, it was harder for me to get a job than a lot of my colleagues. And so I spent some time figuring out, well, what does that mean for me? Do I uh, go and take some job that's outside of my field or do I take some job that may be below my qualifications, but at least it's a job? 
or do I do what I did, which was after at the, the time that this was happening, there weren't a lot of options for me. But a couple of years later, something amazing happened called the Macintosh Plus and desktop publishing. And I got myself a Mac Plus and I uh, didn't buy a laser printer because those were $4,000, but I knew where I could go and print laser prints. And so what I did was I set up this business uh, basically creating publications for people. And I would write and I would uh, lay them out uh, like you would just lay out a newspaper because one of the skills that they teach you in journalism school and in a lot of uh, entry-level jobs in some parts of journalism back in those days was laying out on galley paper and using exacto knives and ruby lith and things that when you don't have very good vision are very hard, difficult to do. And so when the Mac came along, it was a revelation to me. And it was like, oh my God, I can do this and I can do it on screen and then I can print it out in a high quality way. And so I did everything from marketing brochures to uh, formatting pretty good looking term papers for grad students to uh, newsletter, newspaper layouts. I had a couple of contracts to do a monthly newsletter. I did that for a couple of years and in the course of doing that, because I'm just naturally curious, I taught myself just about everything I could about how to use the Mac because I was really curious and I had a lot of time on my hands. And so I became both a, a writer about the Mac and about all the other things I was writing about for my clients, but also just somebody who, who fancy herself pretty good about troubleshooting the Mac. And so that's how... I got into that side of journalism, the tech side of journalism, because one of the things I figured out I could do pretty quickly was I could write about the Mac. I can write about computers. The, the first job I was able to get after having a couple of years of those kinds of experiences was at a company that published niche magazines of newspapers about computers. And so they weren't the Mac, but I created a publication called Supercomputing News, which was a 24-page tabloid we did every month about supercomputers. And it's funny because every job I had and everything I got exposed to, it wasn't the end goal, but it added a little bit of something to my, not not only my knowledge, but just my interest. So I didn't know I was interested in supercomputing and science and how computers aided science, but I found out that I really liked it, just as I didn't know I was interested in how Mac computers worked, but I learned and I, I, I liked it. And, and I ended up using all those skills to move my career forward and actually work in journalism where I didn't, in, in supercomputing news, I did have to lay that out. I also had a Mac plus at that job. And so I had to lay that one out. And so having spent two years teaching myself, PageMaker came in handy. And then eventually, uh, after doing several other things, uh, I ended up at, at Mac user magazine where I was an editor for several years. And that was kind of a dream job because I got to do journalism and I got to write about the Mac all the time. And I got to do fun things like, compare 12 different uh, hardware accelerators for the Mac, which to me was just the most fun way I could possibly think of to spend my time. I thought it was great. And so that was kind of my my early career. And I just, I, I spent most of the rest of the, the career that I've had in technology journalism in one form or another, either in jobs or in, in freelance capacity, uh, writing books. Okay. So you're audience doesn't know this, but uh, I am a person who is totally blind. So for me, those days that you speak of with the Mac were definitely uh, dark days from the point of view of accessibility from my perspective, because there wasn't mm -hmm. much in the way of screen reader access for the Mac back then, except for Outspoken from Berkeley Systems, which uh, a, a lot of people didn't use. Most of us gravitated to to the Windows environment. But it sounds like I, I know you you are a person who, who has low vision. But it sounds like from what you just said, y you had enough. You have enough vision to be able to use the Mac without too much trouble in terms of doing the kind of work that you were just describing. W were there accessibility challenges for you back then, or, or, or was it was it not much of an issue? Well, it's true that there is a great irony in the fact that the Mac did not have accessibility-specific features that helped me, and I was working on 9-inch screens, too, so it was a challenge. But at the same time, what the Mac allowed me to do, because I had enough vision to do it, was a thing that I couldn't do without a computer. And so in that sense, it, it provided me 
an accessible life experience, even if the computer itself didn't have accessibility features. And the limitations usually had to do with being able to zoom in and get close enough to something. Like if I was working in PageMaker, I needed to zoom in in order to edit within the PageMaker document. But guess what? PageMaker had a pretty good zoom, and so you could do that. Now, I don't know how I did this, but a feature that I use now is uh, it's variously called invert colors or reverse video. Uh, now there are dark modes, which are mainstream features in a lot of operating systems, including the Mac, including in iOS. And I didn't have that at all in those days. And I kind of don't know how I did it because I'm uh, what's called photophobic, very sensitive to light. On the Mac Plus, you could dial down the contrast to really, really low level, and I would do that. And the funny thing is if I did that and then I went away from the Mac for a day or two at a time, like a weekend, you know, I wasn't working, and then I'd come back Monday morning and I'd go, wow, that Mac is really dim, but it's how it needed to be in order for me to see it. And there was a feature that they started including with the Mac operating system in the 90s. It wasn't available when I started using it uh, called ClosePhew. And ClosePhew allowed you to have a system level zoom. It also included a reverse video mode. But because by then I was doing a lot of system administration and troubleshooting kind of work, both on a freelance basis and for the for every job I had, I just seemed to pick up Mac system administration. I used to carry around a disk with a copy of the close, close view control panel on it so that whenever anybody asked me to administer their Mac or fix it, do something for it, I would put it in their system folder, I would restart their Mac, and I would run the Mac with ClosePhew. And so uh, I was never any, never went anywhere without my ClosePhew disk. So you were kind of in a unique position, it sounds like, in a way, where you, you were able to do your work visually. So that wasn't a showstopper for you. At the same time, though, I'm hearing that you had to develop lots of workarounds and come up with tools that would make it work for you. So this idea of uh, struggling or adapting or making it work is, a, in my opinion, one of the cornerstones of accessibility. There's, we always have to do some sorts of workarounds or figure out some way to, to make it work. So the, the idea of needing to adapt or needing accessibility, you were no stranger to, but I'm really curious how you got from kind of where you were then to a place where you decided to do a book about accessibility. So I have to be honest here and say that whenever I was hacking my own accessibility or doing all those workarounds, this was not information I was sharing with anybody I worked for or my colleagues. I would tell them I wasn't ashamed of it by any means. And people knew I had close view and I would say to them, I need to put this software on your computer so that I can troubleshoot your Mac. But I never went around broadcasting because I never felt like there was really much ability for people to hear, and especially in those days, in the 80s, the 90s, the early 2000s, I don't think people could hear, I can use the Mac, but I need accessibility accommodations, or the Mac is accessible only sort of. There just wasn't language that people could understand. And I, I could say it, but people couldn't hear it, if you, if you get the difference. And I internalized that so much that for me, those workarounds were just kind of what I had to do. I didn't think in terms of there should be more accessibility or I wonder, you know, could I could I write about accessibility because it was just a workaround that was really individual to what I was doing. And as I say, some of them were software based and some of them were just based on ways I operated in the world. Part of it too was it was just important to me to be able to live in that mainstream world. I felt like I had enough skill and enough knowledge about technology generally that I didn't have to be the person who covers accessibility, even if there had been a place for it. But by the time I ended up thinking about doing a book about accessibility, a number of different things had happened. I had been publishing or writing books about the technology, about the Mac, about web development, about wireless networking. I've been doing all of that when the paper book was still a thing that people bought and when tech books were still things that people bought. And in the mid-2000s, 
both of those markets hit hard times, and especially the tech book market, because there's so much information available on the web. Used to, you had to have a book. And so I would co-write books like Mac OS X for Dummies or uh, the, the Mac, what was it called? The Mac Answers Guide, which is a really good one. It was, it was a sort of a troubleshooting book that I, that I worked on for McGraw-Hill. And I did a bunch of web development books. But those kind of books were just less in demand. So I didn't, wasn't able to get those kinds of contracts anymore because they just didn't really exist. Um, and then the other thing that happened was I just, th- that there was more accessibility out there. There was just... You had a Mac first getting uh, voiceover with Tiger in the mid-2000s. Then it came to iOS finally in 2009. And accessibility was also growing in importance in other operating systems, even in the Windows world. And so accessibility as a part of the operating system was much more a thing by 2012, 2013. And so I still wanted to write books. And I thought, you know, it's time to write about accessibility because there's a lot to say. And even though there was a lot of information on the web, specifically about voiceover for iOS, it was very quickly going out of date because it was created by uh, university tech offices or some, some other entity that had a need to list voiceover commands or something like that. But then the new version of the operating system would come out and nobody would update them. And I saw that as an opportunity. And I said, all right, I'm going to try this. I'm going to try and write a book that addresses accessibility in iOS, all the things I've had to teach myself because I was still using those tactics of, okay, how does voiceover work? Let's figure it out because there was no other book out there that would show me. And Apple did very little, if any, accessibility coverage in their own documentation at that time, even though accessibility was a feature that they were, were touting and, and, being, and they, were, they were a leader. And so I said, all right, well, let's try this. I tried a couple of publishers and said, can I write for you about accessibility? You know my track record. You know the kind of books I can write. And they didn't want those books. They wouldn't want the book because they didn't feel like there were going to be enough people to buy it. They have to, you know, make their nut as well. And so I said, all right, so I have to self-publish about a topic I've never written about. And I have to be more public about my own accessibility journey than I've ever been. Sure, why not? Let's do it. And that's how the book got started. Wow, what a change that is for you personally and professionally to bring that part of yourself out into the public world that you were. It sounds like in some ways we're honestly more comfortable navigating without talking about it. So that, that's that's one change. I guess the other change that comes to mind for me is that Apple changed and they started saying we're the accessibility company after all those years of not having very accessible uh, computers. And, and, and so th- the, the, so many things came together, it seems like. And I remember um, uh, talking with you some when you were working on the first uh, edition of the book about how, how, how you were going to uh, talk about refreshable Braille access and things like that. So, I mean, you, you really had to sort of, um, do what you always do, I guess, and work your way through kind of coming up with a strategy for how you were going to do this. And I, I, I do wonder, um, how that strategy has, evolved and changed and matured now that you're several years down the road and many editions of this book? Well, I knew from the beginning that I I needed to find the thing that I could say, the elevator pitch, as it were, what is the thing that this book is going to have that another book doesn't have? So as I say, there there were web resources out there about voiceover. Anybody at any time could say, I'm going to write a book about voiceover. And when I started researching it, I found that most of the energy in the iOS accessibility community was around voiceover and it made sense. So I said, all right, I'm going to try and write about everything uh, about accessibility, including things I don't know very much about, including refreshable Braille, for example. I didn't have a refreshable Braille display, including tools for hearing impaired folk, including obviously the low vision tools that I was using and that I was adapting. And so that I started there and what I did early on, I'll get to the evolution part in a second, but what I also knew I needed to do was I needed to connect with the accessibility community, whatever that meant, because I didn't know a lot of folks who were part of that community. 
I needed to connect with folks and find out what they wanted in their book because this was going to be something that was essentially going to have to be sold by word of mouth and by people trusting me that I knew something about what I was writing about. And so I felt like I kind of have to introduce myself to a lot of people who, who don't know me and also say, by the way, I'm going to do a good job because I'm a professional writer. And so all that stuff was baked in from the beginning. What's evolved, I guess, is, um, I don't know, you create a structure for a book and then all the technology that's related to the tech that you're all the technology that you're writing about changes in some way. So it was important to me to create a structure that I knew could withstand updates and changes to the operating system, right? So that I could add new information, but I would not have to break the book every time I wanted to do a new edition, although I have changed it a few times over the years. And I guess what's evolved just is there's so much more because even though I started out with a comp the goal to be comprehensive, comprehensive in iOS 7 or iOS 6 when I started, because I never published an iOS 6 book, but I started working on it in iOS 6. And then when iOS 7 came out, it was such a huge change that I just scrapped my plans and said, all right, we're going to do an iOS 7. But from iOS 7 to iOS 15, there's just so much more. And sort of the evolution is about, well, how how do I keep it comprehensive? How How do I cover mainstream features, for example, that you need to understand in order to use accessibility features, but that aren't necessarily accessibility features themselves. Because I remember starting out and going, all right, I'm not going to tell you how to use every aspect of mail or Safari or the messages app, but I'm going to tell you as much as you need to know in order to use the accessibility features. And I quickly realized, oh, wait, they keep adding features that mean there's more connective tissue between the mainstream part and the accessibility part. And so the evolution has just been write more. <laughs> um, and then also just the incorporation of feedback. Like I have gotten mostly really positive feedback. And what I've been surprised by has been the things that people have gravitated to that there were fairly small things that I've taken in and said, okay, I need to write more about that. Like a small example, I have a chapter in the book where I cover each app that's included with iOS. So that means you're covering mail and Safari and calendar and contacts. And I have a little section on the phone app. It's real basic, making phone calls. Very, very accessible, very straightforward. Everybody knows how to make phone calls from, from before they had smartphones. Although, So it's just a matter of technique. But I've had people tell me, wow, I really like your phone section because it's in, it's excruciatingly detailed. <laughs> and so I took that to heart and I said, well, all right, I have to be more detail oriented than even I wanted to be because there was um, a desire for it. And the last thing I'll say that's evolved is sort of my writing style and tailoring it to an audience that's focused on accessibility. Because there are a lot of times you have people who aren't necessarily sophisticated computer users, they're trying to accomplish a task. Maybe they're newly disabled. Maybe they just haven't used technology. Maybe they're afraid of it. Maybe they have a lot going on in their life that means that they don't have time to be enthusiasts like you and I are. So I try to write in a way that makes them feel, makes those folks feel comfortable or that their opinion, that their thoughts and that their anxieties are a worthy thing to discuss in a tech book. And so what's evolved is sort of in, from the beginning is my focus on bringing my reader along and saying, I know this is kind of hard. I know that these voiceover commands layered on top of one another are sort of dense, but you're going to get through it. I promise. Just follow along, do it again and again, and it's going to get easier over time. And I am not the kind of person who is touchy feely in my life. Uh, but I found that being a little more inclusive and a little more personal about the way I write has been helpful in making this book accessible to more people. Well, fair enough about your um, not being a touchy-feely person, but you are a kind person and you are a person who really wants to help people. That's been my experience of you. And that comes across in this book. You 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 really encourage people to be patient with themselves and to keep at it 
and you provide the detail that people need to be able to follow step by step if that's where they're at and accomplish something. And I would have to think that certainly it it must feel pretty good for a lot of those people when they follow those steps and they get the hang of how to use the rotor in the voiceover chapter, or they learn that they can use their phone sort of as, as, as a hearing aid, you know, when they're sitting in a restaurant or they, they, they develop some, some new way of using, uh, the, 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 the switch control that they need to control their, their, their devices. So, I mean, um, it's it certainly, there, there is a, a level of passion or connection that you have with this topic that comes across in the book. But I can't help but ask, what's it like to do this year after year, summer after summer? Because I hear a lot of developers talking about, oh, you know, WWDC is so exciting to hear the new stuff, but oh my God, there goes my summer. It's exhausting, and I don't pretend that what I have to do is a, is the same as what developers have to do, but I think we're in the same boat as far as they, – then they have to ship a little sooner than I do. I give myself – that's the thing about self-publishing. I can kind of give myself a little extra time. There are people who try to get a book out the day that the operating system ships. I'm never going to – that's never going to be my goal, even if I've had the beta all summer, because there's always going to be something that's going to change, especially with accessibility. The more under the hood a feature is in iOS, the more likely it is to change over the course of the beta cycle. And so for me, what it used to be was uh, the self-publishing part, because I was teaching myself how to physically put this book together. And even up to a couple of years ago, that was always a major struggle for a variety of reasons. And so I had that com- as well as all of the, okay, how do I get all the features in? How do I make sure that I understand them, that I'm giving people good guidance? And how do I make sure the feature doesn't change out from under me, which has happened a couple of times? And I think the thing that has made it, po- the two things that have made it possible for me to be sane are just not promising that the book will be available in September when the operating system ships. And secondly, coming up with an even more streamlined, if archaic, process uh, for publishing the book. It's a challenge, though, isn't it? Because when the operating system is released, people are excited and they want to jump in and start using it. But at least certainly I noticed this year, uh, there were there were some uh, publishing on Apple Viz and some some people writing about the new, especially accessibility features, but there wasn't a lot. Uh, in years past, we've had uh, Jonathan Mosen do a, a, a book, um, you know, uh, Anna Dresner does a book for National Bell Press, but but like you, she can't possibly get it out the day that the operating system is released, and so. It must be such a balancing act to try to do a good job and be accurate and get the correct information, but also to get it out in the the timely manner that people need or want it in. Wow, what a I hadn't really thought too much about, but you're walking a tightrope there. Yeah, and this year was big challenge for me as well because I had both, and I've had this for a couple of years now, but I've I, I've had a full time job while I was doing it. I also had some stuff going on in my family life that required my attention and meant that I didn't have as much time to write. And I had, you know, I had a lot going on. And but my reader doesn't know that. My reader in October doesn't know that. Well, Shelley's having to deal with a some family emergency stuff. That's why I don't have iOS 15 to read about. Uh, and so it is a balancing act. I guess I shouldn't announce it yet, but I, I'm pretty sure that what I'm going to do this coming season, which will be the 10th release of the book, if Apple does iOS 16 on the same kind of schedule they've been doing them in the past, my intention is to write a what's new book, which was kind of what Jonathan did. Jonathan didn't do a comprehensive iOS without the eye with every single jot and tittle of voiceover. He said, all right, let's look at what's new. And I think I'm going to try and do that and have that available much sooner. And then the promise will be that the longer book will be available 
a little further down the road. And that way, who's somebody who really, really wants to focus on what's new will also get the opportunity to get more sort of advanced information. Because if I'm just writing what's new, presumably I'm speaking to people who've been using iOS before and kind of want to know, okay, what's the difference? So I don't have to spend as much time on the basics as I would for a book that is going to go all the way from power users all the way to a teacher who's trying to teach a little kid to use iOS for the first time. I certainly support that idea and hope you do that. It will be most helpful to me if you if you go that route and probably to a lot of people. And I know, you know, uh, Joe Kissel at Take Control Books has taken that approach a lot where we'll release the book with the basic information and as things change and update, we'll, we'll add more and, and give you another addition to the book. So that it seems like that's what people have had to do to kind of keep up. But how much does change from year to year, which makes me want to lead into after you can tell me a little bit about how much it changes. Um, I'd love to talk a bit more about what's new this year in, in the iOS 15 book, if you don't mind. Sure. It varies. I mean, that's the, that's the challenge too, is that you don't know from year to year how much is going to change. And frankly, because I'm doing this project in the midst of everything else going on in my life, you can't look at the publication date and say, oh, well, that must have been a big year or a, or a slow year. And I would say iOS 15 was not a particularly momentous year. There are some really interesting new things, both in the mainstream world and the accessibility world. But just in terms of the way I had to change the book or the things I had to add, it wasn't momentous, but there's some some good stuff in there. And especially if you're, for example, an iOS user, iPad OS, I should say, there are new ways of thinking about that part of the operating system. Whereas if you're an iOS user uh, and have an iPhone, you may just go along and not really notice much difference at all unless you're actually actively looking for the new features. Yeah, I mean, that's been the case for me. I've got more time on my hands now to play with it than I did for a while. But back when it first was released, I was sort of relieved in a way that I could just keep using my phone the way I was, even though I knew I wasn't fully taking advantage of the new features. But I guess my point is there wasn't very much about it that was so different or it didn't really break things the way that they used to work. They still worked that way <laughs> right. for the most part, which I was glad about. But but I, I think um, there there is, when I now that I've had a little more time to look at it all, there is quite a bit of, of new and exciting stuff in in 15. Yeah, I think so. And I, I, was, I would start with something like iPad OS, where that operating system, that, that fork of the operating system, continues to make it possible to use an iPad in a way that's closer to the way you would use a computer. So especially if you put it in a case, there are far more keyboard shortcuts. The interface for slide over and split view, the multitasking in iPad OS is much improved. And those aren't specifically accessibility features by any means. And an awful lot of people who read this book will never touch an iPad. But I also know plenty of people who are iPad power users and fans. And so I would say that, you know, that's one of the most interesting things to watch because they, they, they've been doing that for the past couple of versions of the OS since they decided to call it iPad OS. They've, they've said, okay, we're going to add things that are very specific to the iPad and we're going to keep doing this. And so for me personally, as an iPad user, that was one of the most fun things. I really enjoyed what they've done with iPad OS. In your opinion, how well have they done in iPad OS with keeping the accessibility strategy up to the new features that have been added that aren't accessibility related per se, but they have to come come back and find some way to make some of those things work well with voiceover, for example. Have they have they done a pretty good job of keeping even the new stuff in iPad OS pretty pretty streamlined in terms of accessibility? The challenge, especially with voiceover, is that if you're an iPad OS user with vision, you can see the way the interface has changed and you can see the visual guides that you're being given, especially, let's say, with multitasking. You can kind of tell what the operating system wants you to do by looking at it. With voiceover, 
you have to know what the new commands are or what the new gestures are. And so they've made, with one exception that I find really puzzling, they've made all the multitasking quite accessible to voiceover, but it's not intuitive. And I, I, I don't know that voiceover has the opportunity to be all that intuitive. Sometimes it is, sometimes it is because you know that there are certain things you do, you know, you know, different combinations of taps and rotor gestures and the like. But there are times when they change the metaphor that it's a real challenge to bring a voiceover user along without some sort of guidance, whether it's my book or whether it's documentation. Uh, it isn't all apparent. And the exception, the, the thing that they've done with iPadOS that surprised me was that there's this new quick note feature where basically you can bring up a notes window anywhere. Uh, and the gesture to do that with with uh, not without voiceover is a diagonal swipe up from the corner. Uh, you can do it with a keyboard shortcut. But there's not a voiceover gesture for it, and there's not a Braille display command for it. So it's it's not that it's inaccessible, but it's not accessible in all the ways that we would expect as voiceover users. So you have to use the diagonal swipe if you're a voiceover user to bring it up, or can you just not access that feature at all? You do it with a keyboard. The only way you can do it is with a keyboard. The diagonal swipe is if you're not a voiceover user. So there's no like diagonal swipe and hold or double tap and diagonal swipe or anything like that. There's no gesture like that that I've been able to either find by myself or in any documentation anywhere. Uh, so the way to do it is to have a keyboard attached and it's globe, use the globe key, and then there's a command key equivalent that I can't remember off the top of my head. I think it's globe Q, uh, but that's the way a voiceover user would get quick note. Yeah, but you'd have to turn voiceover to off to use that diagonal swipe gesture if you wanted to hit and miss and try to try to make If you a, wanted to do it with a swipe, yes. If you didn't have a keyboard, that would that would mean you'd have to turn voiceover off. But if you had a keyboard, you'd just use the globe cue. Yeah. Well, that is, to me, that feels like quite an oversight because I would think that voiceover users would want to be as likely to want to create a quick note as non-voiceover users. Sure. Absolutely. And that, that, that's... Yeah, it's a weird oversight because it's it seems fairly straightforward. It's not like it's an esoteric thing or something that would be hard to create a voiceover user, a voiceover alternative for. And I remember when I was working on that section, leaving uh, notes in there, because I always have notes for myself. This is something I'll add later because I need to gather the information or do the research. And um, in journalism, we call those TKs to come. And so I had TKs for all of those quick note gestures. And finally, at the last minute, I had to pull them out because they weren't coming. And I was like, I was really disappointed by that. Yeah, that that is disappointing, and and we see that sometimes we're struggling with uh, with iOS 15 and uh, Braille support in some ways. Mm -hmm. There are things that just don't work consistently well, and I get it that they're hard to replicate and probably hard for Apple to fix. But Apple, in my opinion, really needs to step up its game when it comes to uh, Braille support. They they need to do better than they're doing right now because there are any number of, especially deafblind users, who the Braille isn't like it is for me, a, a wonderful thing to have. It's an absolute necessity for them. And if it doesn't work, it's very problematic. Um, I'll get off my Yeah, that's... That's okay. No, I, I want to address that because a challenge I have when I'm writing about this stuff is whether to address bugs. Because if you write about a bug, and, and what we're talking about are some severe bugs in iOS 15 that affect Braille display users. And I almost never address bugs because sometimes they're going to be fixed right away. Sometimes they'll be fixed eventually. Like there was a problem with iOS 15 the original release in terms of some Siri commands being disabled. These are Siri's, Siri commands that a lot of voiceover users relied on, and they were not available in iOS 15. And Apple for a while didn't comment, and then eventually they said, well, in iOS 15.2, those commands will return. And they did. And I don't know why those commands were removed, whether it was an oversight, whether there was some sort of technical issue. But I knew, because when I was writing it, 15.2 was imminent, that it didn't make any sense for me to talk about the bugs. And my goal in the book is not to be on a soapbox about something that isn't the case anymore. But those Braille bugs still exist. And so I feel a little bad not addressing them. But if I address them and they get fixed tomorrow, uh, I mean, I, I, maybe I should just have 
general disclaimers that say, keep up with AppleViz, which is a great site that does an incredible job of keeping up with both the features and the bugs and the ongoing problems as they uh, are in iOS 15, in iOS and macOS. Uh, and I would say that that's a site that you really need to keep up with if you want to know the up-to-the-minute latest about what is and isn't working. So we could talk all day from my perspective about these voiceover bugs, because I'm a voiceover user, but your book goes way beyond just a voiceover and, and low vision. What are some of the other things that, that are in the book, maybe new things or things that would be helpful to someone who's maybe thinking about taking a, a serious look at this book? What else are they going to find in there besides all this voiceover stuff? Structurally, I put the book together so that you're able to browse it based on a number of factors. It could be what kind of a disability you have or whether you're interested in apps or the system as a whole. So, for example, if you're a voiceover user, there's a whole chapter that's all about voiceover. But in the other parts of the book, I will describe voiceover-based alternatives to things I'm describing. So if I'm telling you how to use maps and there's a voiceover gesture that you need if you're a voiceover user then I will say, if using voiceover, do such and such. And I just point that out because some of the things, the things I'm about to talk about are specific to disabilities like hearing impairment or physical disabilities. And each of those is covered in its own chapter. So if you are a person who has a hearing impairment and you want to focus on what iOS can do to make your experience better, then hop on over to chapter five where I cover that. And the same thing is true in chapter six, which is all about physical disability tools including one called switch control that I really want to talk about because I think this is a sort of an underrated new feature in iOS 15. Uh, switch control is a feature that allows you to control your iOS device. In other words, do gestures with something other than your fingertip touching the screen. And there are devices called switches that are USB devices or Bluetooth-based devices that are essentially buttons. And you can program those buttons to do a, da a tap, a double tap, a swipe, various gestures. And, and many people who use switches have a little bank of switches that do the different kinds of gestures that are needed. And switch control is the mechanism by which those are controlled. Okay, that's been around for several versions of the operating system. And there are all sorts of ways to control switches within the operating system, which I cover in the book. Uh, there, are, um, there are other kinds of switches you can use actually the camera as a switch. So if you uh, nod your head, that will be identified as a switch gesture and you can program that, which is pretty cool. Also, if you touch the screen, not a gesture, but if you just physically, if you can touch the screen but can't necessarily make the gestures like a double tap or a swipe, then you can program that as a switch. So those are great. They've been around for a while, but now they've added sounds. There are a lot of people who can make vocalizations. They may not even be able to speak but they can make letter sounds like a K sound or a P sound or an F sound. And so iOS 15 added a number of sounds and they list them. You can't program them yourself, but they list the, the letter sounds that you can turn into switches. So if I can do a K, K sound, I can turn that into a tap or a swipe or whatever I wish to. And combining that with physical switches or using that instead of switches you can essentially create an iOS interface that is specifically tailored to the way your disability allows you to work. And I think that's great. I wasn't aware of that. And that is incredibly exciting. And I, I do applaud Apple for an incredible amount of ingenuity and creativity. Uh, and that's just a good example of it. I was one of the people who never thought they would be able to develop a talking touch screen for iOS, but, but they did. And, and I'm very pleased that they have continued that effort, that creativity, that ingenuity. And I'm also very pleased that we have your book to keep us up abreast of those things because I didn't know about that. So thank you for telling me about it. I was surprised to find it too, because it was one of those, it's on the long list of features to create sound-based switches and I didn't really understand it until I looked into it. I was like, wow, this is pretty groovy. Because I've known a number of people who have, uh, they may be paraplegics or quadriplegics, and they have varying degrees of speech capability. And remember, voice control exists. So if you have speech capability, 
uh, you can actually control the interface with with voice control. You can even combine them, I suppose. I mean, that so they they're doing so much to sort of bring the accessibility features to the different kinds of disabilities and the the sort of gradations of of disability. And I I think that's great. Another thing that they've really been doubling down on in the past couple of versions and did a lot in iOS 15 was hearing related. Uh, So uh, you can, if you get an audiogram from an audiologist, you can apply that to your iOS device and it essentially uh, tunes the device and tunes your hearing aid for your use of the iOS device, which is pretty, according to my friends with hearing impairments, this is pretty great. Um, in addition, there's now um, they had they've had headphone they've added headphone accommodation, which adjusts the way which is part of the audiogram I believe interacts with headphone accommodation. So it adjusts the uh, level and the volume and the balance of sounds in in both your ears because you might have different levels of hearing loss from ear to ear. And then uh, had a sound accommod- uh, uh, what's it called sound recognition, where um, if there is a sound in your environment like a water running or a doorbell or a baby crying or a dog or a cat, you can have your phone indicate that that sound has occurred with a flash. So if you're deaf or hearing impaired, then, oh, I need to know that the water is running or that the baby is crying. And so your phone alerts you. And this is not a new iOS 15. This is iOS 14. But the suite of features for people with hearing impairments seems to be evolving right now at a pretty quick rate. And I should point out that one of the reasons that that's possible is that that's using the machine learning software that app, software and hardware that Apple has been including with the iPhone and with iOS for a little while now, which also makes it possible to do some of the voiceover image recognition. So we're actually benefiting as people with disabilities from the way machine learning has been applied to a very specific set of needs that we have. And I have said this before, it's a little hobby horse of mine, but I always differentiate between an accessibility feature that fixes something so that I can do it. That's one kind of accessibility feature. But an accessibility feature that gives me the ability to do something that I otherwise couldn't do, that because it doesn't exist out there, because you don't, as a person without a disability, need to do that. You don't need to have images described to you. You don't need to have sounds that... Uh, are heard by your device and turned into alerts. That's actually adding to my quality of life. It's not just fixing the limitation that your device has placed on me because I can't touch the screen or see the screen. Yeah, and that's a very Apple-like thing to do is to take the technology and really make it work for people in very unique ways. And I'm so glad that they have done that with accessibility and and I'm glad that we have your book to document what they've done because it's just almost impossible even for me to keep up. I, I listen to a lot of Apple-centric podcasts and I try to read up on what's going on, but, but your book is a very important place to come and I, I do it every year to to really check and see what's changed, what's there. It's interesting to me that you you currently publish the book, if, if I'm not mistaken, in two formats, in an EPUB format and a PDF format. And more and more of my technology um, has started working better with those formats. I'm really excited about the, the new uh, BrailleSense 6, which I use to do an awful lot of uh, my my reading on now has a document reader uh, that supports your EPUB format really really well, where I can easily navigate the book by chapter or heading or subheading within a particular chapter, and it's very very nice. But I, I know that even getting the book in really really accessible formats for all the different types of accessibility, I would guess must be a bit of a challenge. One of the things I had to research when I started this whole process was what formats do people want it in? What formats can I make it accessible in? And what formats can I, given whatever skill I might have, put them in? And EPUB made sense because EPUB is really designed for for books. And if you've ever read an Apple book from the Apple bookstore, that's an EPUB book. There are plenty of other instances of EPUB being out there. 
Uh, but EPUB, as you say, provides the ability to quickly find chapters and and uh, uh, table of contents elements, and it, it able it lets you organize a book in the way that you want to, and and easily within the app. There's a common language that all EPUBs speak, basically, because an EPUB is just a collection of XHTML documents for the nerds out there, uh, zipped together with a binding file and following a certain set of rules. And what that means is that it's it's like your book is a giant bunch of text files. And my book doesn't look like a giant bunch of text files, but because it's made up of them and because it used cascading style sheets, it both looks nice and is completely accessible. There's no content in there that creates a barrier for anyone, which was the reason that EPUB was a no-brainer. It was also a format that Apple was using. And uh, PDF was, to be honest, a popular demand thing. There are a lot of blind and visually impaired folks particularly that are used to having to read PDF documents. It wasn't their choice because a lot of PDF documents are inaccessible, but in their jobs or in their schooling, uh, if they're using a computer format, a lot of them have been given PDF formats and they know that their operating system, whatever it is, will be able to interpret a PDF, oh, by the way, unless it's not accessible. So I had to make that second format because a lot of people didn't, when I say EPUB, they don't know what that means. And I say, oh, it's the Apple Books format. You have an Apple, you have an iPhone in your hand. They don't know what that means. And so even if I tell them, and I've written FAQs, even if I tell them, well, you can get EPUB very easily. And also here is a free and accessible Windows EPUB client. Here's a free and accessible EPUB client for Android. People are used to what they're used to. And short of putting it in a giant Microsoft Word document, which I won't do because I would prefer that people not copy my book, uh, you know, <laughs> I and, and I know that that's what – there are a lot of other formats that are highly specific to um, accessibility uh, communities, uh, like some people put their books in computer Braille. I know National Braille Press puts their books out in a lot of different formats, computer Braille and, and Word and that sort of thing. And I've just chosen not to go that next level, but I decided that doing an EPUB and a PDF – was a good compromise because I knew I could make my PDF accessible. And so anybody on any platform would be able to read it if they wanted that. But then I would also advocate for them to try EPUB because it's a far more flexible format. It, once you're used to it, once as a reader, once you've used PD, once you've used EPUBs, you'll find that they're universally easier to read and navigate than PDFs. But Far be it for me, and I do keep statistics, uh, far be it for me to tell 20 to 25 percent of my audience, sorry, I'm not going to do this for you. So I make a PDF every year. And up until the past couple of years, I complained about doing it because it was a real challenge to figure out how to make it accessible, not because it's impossible to make a PDF accessible, but because I was converting from EPUB which is a completely accessible format. I was having to go into another application and turn it into an EPUB, or turn it into a PDF, which was countervening my accessibility. Anyway, it was a, it's a whole thing and it's a whole publishing saga. And the joke among my friends is if you talk to me anytime in the summer and fall, I'm going to complain about having to make an EPUB, which I probably shouldn't do because again, 20 to 25% of my audience prefers that format. And so I make it for them. Uh, but in the past couple of years, it's gotten a little easier for me because I've got a, a system. Uh, but yeah, go EPUB. Shelly, do you think that one of the things that's changing a little bit is that there have been a, a few, some of them pretty good, um, low-cost uh, Braille, electronic Braille devices come available in the last few years, but they only typically will read uh, text or BRF files, Braille files. And I suppose uh, even if you didn't want to do it, yourself, I wonder if there could be a way that perhaps someone who had, say, an Orbit Reader uh, Braille device could create themselves or maybe maybe not. But I'm trying to I figure out I'd some way for someone to get a BRF, say, copy of the book if they could only read it yeah. or the best way to read it would be on a, a device that only supports a, a format like that. See that I mean that is a good point because up until a few years ago it didn't seem as urgent but now you do have this proliferation of low cost braille devices and you have programs that are getting braille devices into the hands of more people and you know a lot of us in the blindness community know that there's a continuing battle to support braille's 
continued survival because there are a lot of people out there who are just not as interested in Braille as they used to be. But these low-cost devices are getting Braille into the hands of more people, and that's a very good argument for creating a book that's in a format that people who have those devices and who prefer to use Braille can read. And I think it's going to be a matter of me learning how to do that. I, I'm still drawing the line at Microsoft Word docs. I don't really want to do that. But uh, BRF totally makes sense. And um, I, I think that's something I need to look into. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's practical or doable. Um, but but I do. And it's also not great, to be honest, because in the BRF format, you don't have any ability to, to format the book the way that you do where people can easily locate chapters and headings and so forth. You have to just use the find command and enter a search. Yeah, and the, pr- and the proofreading part for me, like this book has a couple hundred thousand words. And I would feel weird about putting it in a format where, sure, I mean, I have an old Braille display. I can run it through there. But do I really want to proofread three formats? I mean, this is sort of an inside baseball question, and I would, would actually entertain feedback from listeners about how important they feel it is. On, on the on the reader side, you're right, though. It's like, well, you lose all the benefits of all that formatting. On the creator side, I don't want to give out a product that I don't feel like I can control the quality of. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe that the that the Braille displays will are in the process of maturing more, but some of them simply don't have the the processing power to support the the more complex formats, and that's one of the ways they keep the costs low. It is so so fascinating, you know, that we're we're at this interesting time with Braille where now thanks to electronics um, there's more Braille books available than ever have been on electronic Braille displays, but fewer people interested in Braille. So it's, it's just an interesting dilemma that we're in. But that said, I, I'm just wondering, is there anything else maybe other than it would be great if you if you don't mind telling people how they could go about getting the book how do, how do you get one of these now that we've now that we know everybody wants one how are they going to get it well um you can go to my website which is iosaccessbook.com and there are links to buy the book in epub pdf or you can buy it from the apple bookstore which is the same epub format the advantage you have there is you can manage it through your apple account if you want to Uh, The disadvantage for me is I don't get quite as much money because Apple needs its cut. I also have a combo version because I found that there were a few people who wanted to have both the EPUB and the PDF format. And so I charge a little more for that, but I give you a zip file that has those two books, those two copies. The the the, uh, website also has a table of contents for the book, which is pretty extensive, as well as a sample chapter. The the chapter that's up right now is from the previous version of the book. I actually need to update it, but it's the Siri chapter. And I uh, will happily sell you the book there. Or as I say, you could go to the, you can go directly to Apple Books and search for iOS Access for All, or you could search my name. I sell it for $25 US in the EPUB and PDF formats and then the combo version. You can also follow the book on Twitter at iOS Access Book. Uh, I have been known to put the book on sale every once in a while. What I said to somebody last week is that when there's a accessibility tech conference happening and I don't get to go to it, sometimes I get bored and I put my book on sale. So if that gives you any guidance as to when you might find it on sale, you know, be that as it may. <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, I, I guess we'll we'll find out whether you're going to CSUN or not by whether or not the book goes on sale. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Robert, I want to thank you so much for for taking the time to talk to me about this. As I as I mentioned at the top, I've known Robert for a really long time, and he's always supported my book. He's had me on his shows, and he's bought the book before I had a chance to write him and say, "Would you like a copy?" And I really appreciate it's the support of folks like you and others in the community that I met when I was just starting this process that really gave me the encouragement I need. Because I, you know, you go along and you have this idea. I like to think that I don't care what other people think about me, but when I come up with a project and then somebody says, oh, that's a great idea, you should do that, or I read your first one, you should totally do another one, that's the kind of motivation that keeps me going. And Robert has always been somebody that's been willing to to give me that great feedback. So thank you, Robert. You're welcome, Shelley, and it's been a pleasure to talk to you about the book. I look forward to it coming out every year. 
And now that we're done with this podcast, I can get back to reading. <laughs> but before you go, why don't you tell people where they can find you on the internet? Well, I'm not real visible at the moment, although I, I do uh, check my Twitter account occasionally. It's uh, Robert underscore Carter. I do have a, a website, dr-carter.com, which is where the podcast files are located, the Tech Doctor podcast. You can subscribe to that by entering Tech Doctor into your favorite uh, podcatcher, and it should come right up. We haven't been doing many episodes, mostly only when Apple does an event. Uh, we cover every one of those, but we're going to be doing more in the not too distant future because I have more time to devote to it now. I have a passion for podcasting, but I've been really busy with work the last uh, few years and a lot of going on with this little pandemic thing and all this stuff. So, But it's settling down a bit and I've got more time. So that's where I'm at and that's kind of what, what we're up to. So we'll, uh, we'll, you'll be hearing more from me as time goes by. Excellent. You can follow this show at Parallel Pods on Twitter or go to relay.fm slash parallel, sign up for the podcast and or become a member of Relay. You know you want to. Bye now. <laughs>